Ephesians chapter 5. This morning we are continuing our series in Ephesians that we picked back up last week. And I want to invite you again to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And as you do so, and before Emily reads, I just want to give all of you parents out there just a brief warning before this sermon. As you, you may have noticed in the, the sermon title already, we are going to be talking about sex and sexuality this morning. And while I will not be unnecessarily graphic, and I certainly will not be crude in any way as our passage condemns that, uh, we are going to be talking about these things, making applications for our lives as disciples in our sexually confused culture. So if this is something that you would rather have not, ha- that you would rather not have your kids hear in this context, if this is something you would rather not have your kids hear from me, feel free to turn their attention elsewhere as you see fit. As you see fit there. On that note, I do want to invite Emily to come and read our passage, Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Thank you. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. I know you're good. All right. Well, how should we then live? This is a a question most famously asked by Francis Schaeffer. But as we turn to our passage this morning, we see that Schaeffer wasn't the first one to ask us this question. Because as we look at our text this morning, we see that it's this very question that has caused Paul to put pen to paper. As, as Tab highlighted last week, generally speaking, you can divide Ephesians into two parts. The, the first three chapters, chapters one through three, are highlighting the, the doctrine of the gospel. And the second part, chapters four through six, highlighting the application of the gospel. The first half is, consor- is concerned with orthodoxy, and the second half is concerned with orthopraxy, with, with right behavior. And here in our passage this morning, Paul is answering for us the question of, in light of the gospel, how should we live sexually? 
in light of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how should we live sexually? I want to ask you this morning, how do you answer that question? In your mind, as you think about the gospel, what impact does it have on your thoughts, your desires, and your actions when it comes to sex and sexuality? Perhaps you're, you're here and you're thinking this morning that the gospel and the Bible teach that you can't have sex before you're married, but that's about it. Perhaps uh, you're here and you think that the gospel really doesn't have anything to do with sex or sexuality. Sure, the gospel saves you from your sins, but it doesn't say anything about what you do with your body or how you behave in your bedroom. Or maybe you're here and you're sure that the gospel does have something to say about your sexual lives, but you're just not really sure what the gospel has to say. Well, this morning, as we look at our passage, as we look at Ephesians 5, we're going to see how the gospel impacts our sexual lives as it places two distinct calls on each of our lives. It places a call on our lives in the church, and it places a call on our lives as we live in the world. It's going to be our outline this morning. We're going to look first at the gospel's call on our sexual lives in the church, and then we're going to see later the gospel's call on our sexual lives in the world. So first, let's look at the call of the gospel on our lives in the church. In verses 3 through 6, we see that the gospel calls us to live sexually pure lives. This calling to sexual purity is, is seen right off the bat as in verses 3 and 4, Paul lists six sins, six behaviors, and six attitudes that we are to avoid. He lists six things that we are not to do. Look at these verses with me. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Did you, you catch all of those? One after another, Paul lists off sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking or crude joking. None of these things, he tells us, are to even be named among us, yet alone practice. Well, to, to flesh out, to, to, to paint a little bit more of a picture here of what this sexually pure life, what this life looks like that Paul's calling us to, I just want to unpack a couple of these terms for us. In verse 3, we see that as Paul begins his list, he tells us that sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you. In these two phrases here, sexual immorality and all impurity, Paul is referring really to any and all sexual sins that we commit with our bodies. Here in Ephesians, at the top of this list, Paul certainly would have been forbidding any sort of sexual activity outside of the God-ordained context of a loving and committed marriage between a male and a female. 
Here in Ephesus, Paul certainly would have had in mind the, um, really just the, the inappropriate sexual behavior that was done to the, god, to the goddess Artemis, the, the goddess of fertility. So he certainly has any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage in mind, but he has much more than this. In, in our context today, Paul would be listing off forbidding things like watching pornography or masturbation. He'd be forbidding things like intentionally scrolling through TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, or any of those other sites looking for sexualized content or posting content like that. And he would have been forbidding doing anything with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or doing anything with anyone for that matter that you wouldn't do with your brother or sister, any of these things, all of these things, Paul is telling us must not take place among us. No sexual, inappropriate sexual behavior is to take place among us. That's, that's the first thing Paul wants us to see as he paints this picture of a sexually pure life. But as he continues, we see that he's not just talking about our physical behaviors, the things that we do with our bodies, but he's also speaking about our thoughts and about our desires, we see this in the use of his word covetous, covetousness in verse 3. Now, your translation here might say the word greed, um, but I like the way that the ESV uses the, the translation, uses the word covetousness, because I think that it better captures what Paul is after here. You see, because when we think about greed, what do we usually associate greed with? Anyone? Bueller? Money, that's right. We, we usually associate it with money. We associate greed with, with craving or desiring money. But here in Ephesians 5, given the, the sexual content of this passage, I think that it's better for us to see this word as referring to, to the desire or the craving of someone else for your own sexual gratification. Here, here the picture Paul's painting for us is, is that of someone who's lusting after, someone who is, who, is, um, who is coveting someone else sexually. Here in verse 3, taking these three phrases together, we see that God is concerned with not just our actions, but he's also concerned in calling us to live sexually pure lives with not just our actions and our behaviors, but also in our thought lives and in what we desire. Paul continues in verse 4 as, as the focus shifts from our behaviors now to our speech. As Paul says that we must not engage in, in filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. Here, all three of these phrases, we can, we can look at them together. And in using these three phrases here, Paul is, is really calling us to, to do away with, to, to not engage in any sort of, of dirty talk, any sort of, of talk that is seen as a, a dirty mind expressing itself in, in jokes that, that traffic, whether it's in, in sexual innuendos or if it's double entendres or, or any sort of, of double joke or um, any sort of dirty jokes. All of these things Paul is, is forbidding. He's saying this type of conversation must, must not even be named among you. It's not proper. It's out of place for Christians this is, this is a picture of what a, a sexually pure life looks like. Paul is calling us to sexual purity in our thoughts and our desires, in our words, and in our actions. And as we, we take a step back here to consider the cultural context of Ephesus, 
this calling to live pure lives is actually a lot more radical than it might sound for you and me as we think about living sexually pure lives in, our, in the United States today. Because no matter how sexualized you think our culture is today, and you're certainly not wrong to think that it is, but no matter how sexualized you think our culture is today, it has absolutely nothing on the first century Roman world. You see, what we call pornography today, the Romans simply called daily life. The images that you'd have to go look for and search for online today would have been plastered on the walls everywhere you looked in Rome and in the Roman world. And just strangely so, it was found often inside homes as people had these paintings on their pictures that they would use and all over their, these houses as well. These, these images were everywhere. Commenting on how much more sexualized the Roman culture of Paul's day was than our day today, Preston Sprinkle memorably said that what I've seen portrayed in the Roman world makes Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga look like nuns. Now, I don't know much about Miley Cyrus or Lady Gaga, but even the little of what I do know means that whatever was going on in the first century Roman world must have been some pretty crazy stuff, stuff that you and I do not see or interact with on a daily basis. But here in this Ephesian context, in this first century Roman world that Paul's writing to, he's telling the, these Ephesian Christians that unlike the hyper-sexualized culture that they lived in, they were, they were to be a sexually pure community. Now, as we read these verses here, it's important for us to keep in mind that Paul is not simply calling the Ephesians here with these commands in the verses 3 and 4 to live a moralistic life. He's, he's not merely giving them a list of do's and don'ts that they have to obey. No, as we, we began this sermon here in these verses, Paul is showing how the gospel impacts our sexual life, how the gospel impacts and it changes how we live our daily lives, which is why there are connections to the gospel woven throughout every single verse here in, in, Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. In verse 3, we, we see that the reason for Paul's prohibitions is because the behaviors are not proper among the saints. Did you see that there? The, these behaviors, they're not proper among the saints. They're not fitting. And Paul says the, the, basically the exact same thing in verse 4 when he says that things like crude joking are out of place. Here in verses 3 and 4, we see that the reason we are called to live sexually pure lives is because uh, sexual sins are just simply inconsistent with the gospel. Sexual sin does not fit with, it doesn't, it's not in place with the gospel. Because as we see in Ephesians 5.2, we didn't read that, but as we see in Ephesians 5.2, the gospel is all about Jesus' sacrificial and self-giving love for his people. But in our sexual sin, whatever that may be, in thought, in desire, or in action, in all of our sexual sin, we are acting in selfish, in self-serving ways 
that are completely opposed to the example of Christ, the one who came not to use other people for his own pleasure, but the one who came and laid down his life for them instead. You see here in Ephesians 3 verses 5 verses 3 and 4, more than just a list of do's and don'ts here, Paul is grounding this call to live sexually pure lives in the gospel of Jesus' sacrificial and self-giving love. And amazingly, he is inviting us to display this love through our sexual purity, only giving ourselves sexually to the one that we have made a covenantal commitment to in marriage. And as Paul continues in verses 5 and 6, here he again connects our sexual purity to the gospel. Follow along as I read these verses. In verse, starting in verse 5, Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, those are all the same sins from verse 3. Anyone who's acting in those ways, Paul tells us, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In these verses here, Paul couldn't be more clear about the future of those whose lives are characterized by unrepentant sexual sin. He is saying that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But instead, they are going to experience his wrath, as, he's, as we see in verse 6. But as we remember here that Paul is writing to Christians, to the saints, to those who have trusted in Jesus, I don't think that this warning here is primarily to motivate us through the fear of judgment, although there's certainly an element here. But I think that this warning, these warnings here in verses 5 and 6 are primarily here to motivate us to live sexually pure lives by reminding us of God's grace and forgive, reminding us of God's grace and forgiveness that we've experienced in our lives. Because the truth is, apart from God's grace, each and every one of us here is the sexually immoral, impure, and covetous person that verse 5 lists. Every single one of us here is deserving of God's just and righteous wrath against our sin. But, and this is God's grace, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, if you are here and if you are trusting in him this, mor this morning, then you have been forgiven of all your sins, including all of your sexual sins, meaning that you will never experience God's wrath. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment to let this truth sink in. If you are here and trusting in Christ this morning, all of your sins, including your sexual sins, have been forgiven. Now, I'm going to slow down here. I want to stop here because I know that many of you are quickly filled with shame and with regret as you think about your sexual failures past and present whether it's the ways that you were sexually active before you were married, or whether it's that ongoing pornography addiction, 
It's the ways that you've used others for your own sexual gratifications, or maybe even the way that right now you are engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage, whatever it is. I know that just the thought of these sins can instantly fill you with shame and with regrets. And if you are here this morning, if you can relate with that feeling, I want you to receive the promise of the gospel in this passage and know that in Christ, God has forgiven you. He doesn't hold these sins against you. They don't affect the way that he is relating to you right now. Past past sexual sin doesn't have God holding you at arm's distance as if you are damaged goods or anything like that. No, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, God runs toward sexual sinners like you and me, and he embraces us, covering our sin covering our shame, and freeing us from the stranglehold of regret that weighs us down. This is, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of God's grace that it never asks us to go back in time and to undo what can't be undone. But God's grace, the gospel, calls us to look to and to trust in Jesus, the one who is what we're not, the one who did what we couldn't do, and the one who right now is helping us to become what we could never become on our own. That's God's invitation to us here in these verses. He wants us to look and see Jesus' self-giving love and in light of our experience of this grace and forgiveness to seek to display this love, this faithful love, as we strive to live sexually pure lives. Doesn't this truth, this reality of our sexually pure lives demonstrating and displaying the gospel just encourage you and motivate you to want to live these sexually pure lives, lives that display God's glorious gospel of grace? This is good news, brothers and sisters, for you and for me. Before we move on to the second calling, I just would feel remiss if I didn't offer that if you are here and if you are struggling with sexual sin, I just want to invite you to, to reach out to someone for help. Reach out to the elders. Reach out to your home group leader. Reach out to a trusted friend, someone who you know will minister the gospel to you because it is only as you experience God's grace and love in the gospel that you will be able to live out your sexuality in a way that pleases God. And I think secondly, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some are hearing me and thinking that it doesn't matter how we live sexually because God forgives us and God is loving towards us. And if that is perhaps how you are tempted to think right now, I would just er caution you with the warning of Ephesians, verses, uh, five, or Ephesians 5 verses 5 and 6 to not take God's grace for granted because the warning in those verses is real. Those who continue unrepentantly in sexual sin will face God's wrath, will not receive an inheritance in his kingdom. So this is the first call of the gospel, the call of the gospel on our lives together. And in this call, we see that God is calling us to live sexually pure lives. And as Paul continues, we see the second call of the gospel. And it's, it's a call on our life in the world. 
I say our, our life in the world because starting in verse 7, the emphasis in the passage shifts from how we're supposed to relate with, with one another to how we relate to those outside of the church. Using imagery of, of light and darkness, Paul shows us how the gospel impacts how we relate to those outside the church as it calls us to live as lights exposing our sexually dark culture. We see this with me here in verses 7 and 8. Starting in verse 7, Paul writes, Therefore, do not become partners with them. They are the, that's the, the sexually immoral people from verses 5 and 6. Paul says, don't become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Rather than becoming partners with those walking in the sexually dark culture, those who are sharing and participating in sexual sin, here God, through Paul, calls us to live as lights, exposing the darkness of the sexual world around us as we show and as we share the beauty of the gospel to all of those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. That's the call here as he calls us to walk as children of the light. And just like with our first call, we see that Paul grounds this call to live as light, exposing the sexually dark culture. It is grounded in the gospel. You see, our motivation to live as lights, exposing our sexually dark culture, is seen in verse 8 that we just read, where Paul highlights the work of God in our lives, where he has fundamentally changed our identity, where he said at one time we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Do you see that there? Here in this verse, Paul is saying that we were darkness, and now we are light. When, when God opened our eyes to believe the gospel, he profoundly changed everything about us down to the very core of, of who we are. He, he changed us as the, the change that took place was as stark as light and as darkness. And it's crucial that we understand this because as my good friend Dan Arthur recently reminded me, it's only when we know who we are that we'll know what we're supposed to do. It's only when we, we know who we are that we'll know what we are supposed to do. And that's what Paul's highlighting for us here in these verses. He's showing us that the transformation that God has brought about in our lives from darkness to light, he's showing us who we are so that we know how we're supposed to act in the world. As I've mentioned here, our calling is to live as light, exposing our sexually dark culture, and that work of exposing our sexually dark culture flows from the very core of who we are as light. We see this work in verses 11 to 14, where Paul tells us to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. 
This word here, expose, it means to, to show something for what it really is, to, to reveal what's wrong, to reveal what is broken. And it also has the idea of not only showing what is wrong, but in exposing, you are also showing a better way. You are showing a better alternative. You're showing a different vision of what life could look like. And in the context of our passage here, it seems like this exposing work happens from both our words and our witness. It happens and we expose the deeds of the light or the deeds of darkness in both our words and our witness. And I just want to briefly look at each of these here. First, we, we expose the darkness. We, we live as light, exposing the darkness with our words as we call sin, sin. We're not like those in verse 6 who try to deceive others with empty words, but we expose the deeds of darkness, the work of darkness, as we speak the truth, as we call sin, sin, as we look at what the Bible says about sexual morality, about sexual ethics, and we speak the truth for what it is, not shying away from what the world or the culture would have us say. We see that we expose the darkness with our words when we speak the truth about the, the disastrous effects of our culture's view of sexual morality, of consent, where harm, and that term is never, never defined, where harm is the only thing that's not allowed. So we, we expose the deeds of darkness as we, we uncover these things and as we show the, just the the utter bankruptcy of a morality of consent where as long as two people want to do whatever they're going to do, it should be okay as long as no one gets hurt. One of the ways as light we expose the darkness is by speaking the truth to that. And we do it as well as we show the beauty of the biblical view of sexual ethics when rightly applied, how it, it, it leads to the protection of the most vulnerable among us. As we look at the biblical view of sexual ethics, we can expose the works of darkness as we show that a biblical sexual ethic rightly applied actually leads and provides for those who are most vulnerable and oppressed among us. So we expose the deeds of darkness with our words. But more importantly, especially as we look at living as children of light, as Paul impacts that in verses 9 and 10 for us, it seems like we more effectively expose the works of darkness with our witness. We expose the work of, of darkness as we live sexually pure lives that display the faithful love of God for his people. For, for married people, we, we show the faithful love of Christ as you remain faithful to your spouse in thought, desire, and in action. As you do that, you are putting God's love on display as you love one another like that. This is true for the singles in our midst as well. As you live sexually pure lives, abstaining from sex outside of marriage, in that, in your denial of engaging in that, you too are bearing witness to the goodness and the beauty of God's faithful love. And today, I am not sure that there is a more powerful witness in our culture than for those of you who are single, living faithfully or sexually pure lives displaying God's 
faithful love. We, we, as we live as light in both our words and our witness, we are exposing the works of darkness. We are revealing the bankruptcy of our, sexu- of our broken and dark sexual culture. And as we look, as we look at verses 13 and 14, we see the effects that this can have, the effects as we expose the work of darkness. First, not only does it bring darkness into the light, not only does it expose sin and oppression for what it is, which is wonderful, and as Christians, we want to see this. We want to expose what is hidden in the dark. We want to bring things like like oppression, sexual abuse into the light. We want to do that. But it seems as well that is one effect is it brings darkness into the light. But secondly, it seems like in verse 14, that this exposing work of ours as we live as light, it also has the possibility of converting those in darkness. As we're told that anything that becomes visible is light. Is that how you, you see your life as we think about how the gospel impacts, how the gospel shapes our lives sexually as we live in the world? Do you think that you're living a sexually pure life, you're living a faithfully pure life to what God's word teaches has the impact of being able to save those who are not Christians. Seems like that's what Paul is telling us here as he shows that anything that is made visible becomes light. It says, for anything that becomes visible is life. Now, it's not saying that every single person seeing a Christian living a sexually pure life will be converted, but it does seem that this is an effect our lives can have as we bring things into the, in, as we make things visible, they can be brought into the light. So here in this passage, as we think about how does the gospel impact our sexual lives? How does the gospel impact how we think about sex and sexuality? I think, or I hope that you are seeing the two calls that the gospel makes on our lives. The gospel first calls us to live sexually pure lives, to be a sexually pure community in the church. And secondly, secondly, it calls us to live as light, to live sexually distinct lives in a sexually dark culture that by our words and by our witness, we might expose the works of darkness and by God's grace, have others see the powerful witness of God's faithful love for his people as we live in those ways. I want to invite Philip down, the Lord's Supper team, to prepare.